High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Today, we will bring you legal and regulatory high truths. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Should marijuana be legalized, decriminalized? That was the basis of a recent episode of The Dr. Phil Show. I was a guest on Dr. Phil and seated in the audience section with people who were against legalization, facing the guests who were pro-legalization. But I didn't feel like I should sit on any side. To me, the wrong question was being asked. The question is not to decriminalize. I think most Americans agree that people who choose to use pot should not go to jail. I'm with you. I also don't think the issue is legalization. I live in California. Marijuana has been legal for years. If people want to smoke pot, smoke tobacco, drink alcohol, it's up to you. The question is, do we have adequate regulation on cannabis products to protect consumers? Should we openly be selling 98% THC, a product that acts like methamphetamine, a hard drug? We place caps on nicotine and alcohol proof. Similarly, I think we should place a cap on THC potency. Should we be selling cannabis-infused sugary beverages, Weedos that look like Cheetos or pot that looks like children's cereal or candy? I think those products prey on our youth and poison our children. Babies have died from these marijuana products. The number one drug in emergency department poisonings of children under the age of five is THC. Cannabis is legal, but the public health harms are growing because of lack of regulation. We need regulations that protect the public and protect our children. People know the harms of tobacco and alcohol, and the harms of cannabis are hidden from the public like they were for tobacco years ago. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Love and High Truths. My name is Gemma Riverton, and I'm a nurse practitioner, friend, and mother. And I enjoy working side by side with you in the emergency department, Dr. Love. And I admire and thank you for the work you do on the broad issue of drugs and addiction. But sadly, I continue to see patients in the emergency department with marijuana poisoning, such as psychosis, hyperemesis syndrome, cardiovascular effects, and children are exposed too. So marijuana is legal in California, but how can we better inform the public on health consequences so we can decrease our emergency visits? Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. I have worked with you for many wonderful years in a busy emergency department, and I so appreciate you and enjoy working with you. You're committed to giving and to service in a tough environment. You inspire me to do the same. To answer your question, I have today a leading expert in marijuana public health policy, Dr. Lynn Silver. Dr. Silver is a pediatrician, public health researcher, and advocate. She's a clinical professor at the University of California in San Francisco and senior advisor at the Public Health Institute, where she directs the prevention policy group, Getting It Right from the Start. Getting It Right from the Start brings best public health policies to protect youth from cannabis. You can find Dr. Lynn Silver's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Lynn Silver, welcome to High Truths. Hello, uh, Dr. Lev. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I am really excited that you're joining us. We've been working together this past 
uh, year on marijuana health policy. You're a pediatrician and a public health expert. And tell us about yourself and how you came to the focus on this issue of marijuana and cannabis. Well, as you said, I'm a pediatrician, so I care a lot about the health of our children and youth. Um, so that's a first thing that brought me to the table here. Um, but I've also spent um, a lot of my life looking at public health policies um, to regulate products and products that have different kinds of effects on people's health. Um, I started with medicines um, and both uh, trying to get access to medicines like AIDS medicines and to regulate ones that were less safe. Um, and then I went on to work for uh, quite a few years on regulation of food and risks of food um, to uh, the creation of chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Um, and then um, I also worked on tobacco control. And so when I saw cannabis being legalized in California, um, and I was always very supportive of, of ending mass incarceration and not putting people in jail um, because they had a joint in their pocket, um, I was also very concerned that we weren't taking the lessons from other areas like tobacco um, in how we uh, allow products that maybe should be legal but are also harmful to be marketed in our country. Um, so I started this project called Getting It Right to the Start to try and change how we think about cannabis policy and um, the, where it's being legalized, whether you agree with legalization or not, that is moving forward in a large part of our country. Uh, and we have to deal with it. So we need to develop the best possible policies. Yeah. And, and we're so fortunate to have you here in, in, in California, but also your influence uh, nationwide and your experience, like you said, with medications and um, you know, food industries and whatever, all that experience ap ap applies to marijuana. So really you're at the, the forefront of uh, a, a new field in protecting the public. Um, Gemma Reppington is a nurse practitioner that I've worked with in the emergency department for many years. And her question from what she sees in the emergency department is, what are the best policies to protect the public from cannabis poisonings. And I know you're going to dive into her question um, throughout this uh, podcast, but let's start perhaps with understanding the history of marijuana legalization in, in the United States and in California. Um, you know, so the, the history is, uh, you know, maybe 100 years ago, um, more than 100 years ago, marijuana was um, primarily a botanical product. Uh, used for pleasure, but also used in some cases for pharmaceutical uses. Um, in the early 20th century, it came under control as a controlled substance. Um, and there was some reason for that that does cause harms um, that are not insignificant, um, but it was also uh, became an avenue for political and social repression as well. So um, and that one that was very disproportionate uh, to its harm so that many, many people, primarily people of color, were getting put in jail um, in the United States on a large scale for marijuana possession. And that became a major social problem that affected uh, the lives of many uh, people in, in many communities, particularly um, black and brown communities in the United States. Uh, so we had this substance um, that a lot of people like to use and that we know was widely available in the United States and that, you know, many of us and many of our children may have used over the years. Um, but yet for a subset of users causes significant harms, um, but also the public policies that had been developed were extremely harmful because uh, they were resulting in such large scale incarceration. So there has been a movement um, over the past few decades, really, uh, it started initially with legalization of so-called medical use of marijuana um, in most places and uh, medical dispensaries would open up and um, be selling marijuana for medical use. Uh, and that in itself was very complicated because why there are a few medical applications of marijuana that are valid and evidence-based like treating uh, chemotherapy-associated nausea there's also a huge amount of hype and misinformation um, and incorrect information about medical uses. You know, it'll cure cancer, it'll cure your depression. Uh, it's often being uh, recommended for things that it may actually make worse. 
Um, but that industry spread um, and public perceptions of marijuana changed. Um, and then we saw a wave of what I think is the most positive part of this, which was decriminalization policies, which then started alleviating um, the very large number of arrests uh, for marijuana and arrests that were typically characterized by occurring, you know, five, 10 times more frequently in Black people than in white people, even though rates of use were not very different. Um, and then on the heels of decriminalization, um, which took place in many states uh, across the country to varying degrees, we then saw a movement to legalize so-called recreational or adult use of marijuana. Um, now it was 19 states. Now I think it's 21 with uh, this week's, this last week's elections, um, opening up the legal market uh, to sale without a pretense of being a medicinal product, but for uh, recognizing that most people are using it for pleasure. Um, but with that movement, um, which has often been framed as a movement to end the criminal justice consequences of past policy, uh, in reality, what to a large extent has occurred is the creation of a new industry, um, an industry that's driven primarily by profits and with increasingly large and powerful investors coming in. Um, and one that is selling products that look very, very different from what we used to call marijuana that are no longer the plant uh, that people smoked in the joint 30 or 40 years ago that might have been 5% THC. The botanical product has been transformed and then these new industrialized production of both very potent concentrates and edibles uh, has emerged so that what people think of as cannabis or marijuana markets really look very little like what people thought they were legalizing. So that's that's kind of some of the background. Much of the problems that we're seeing hitting our emergency rooms and the places that you work uh, and take care of patients um, are happening because of uh, also because of this transformation of the market into something that looks very, very different from what marijuana was historically. Yeah, I treat uh, at least one case of marijuana poisoning every single day, every single shift, um, and see complications of marijuana, people with their medications, or um, and just uh, yesterday, I had a gentleman who came in with psychosis, um, not acting right, really related uh, to uh, marijuana. And actually, just a couple of days ago, there was a horrible, horrible incident in um, Los Angeles, where a driver, probably impaired, drove into all these police cadets and hurting them. And his breathalyzer was negative for alcohol. And I really hope they tested him because there was a lot of marijuana in his car. And um, you have to be impaired, either from drugs or a medical condition, to, to cause such um, carnage on the road. So, yeah. you know, that's those are the kinds of things that are very scary about this market. When you allow um, a for-profit industry to sell products that are 80, 90% THC, which is what um, many of this new generation of concentrates that are being sold in our legal cannabis markets are, um, you greatly increase the risk of the kinds of things you're seeing in your emergency room of psychosis, um, of triggering uh, schizophrenia-like illness, of suicidal ideation, um, and these are terribly, terribly serious conditions. Anyone who's ever lived or had a family member or friend who's developed psychosis or schizophrenia knows how painful, um, how agonizing, um, how awful for families and for individuals those illnesses are um, and how difficult to manage. Uh, you know, it tears lives apart and families apart. So the idea that we are regulating this emerging market in a way uh, that exacerbates rather than controls those risks from products is deeply disturbing to me. That's one of the things that makes me feel passionate about this, uh, that makes me care about it. We should not have a single psychosis case occurring in our country uh, that can be avoided um, through product regulation. Yeah, you and I worked and you led the effort this this past year trying to get some regulation um, to the California um, legalization market. Sadly, since marijuana has been legalized, there's been no 
legislation to try to control it. And what people voted for years ago um, is not even the same product, like you said, that's sold today. And in this year, we got to know so many parents whose children have either committed suicide um, or have cannabis-induced psychosis. It was very, um, you know, heartbreaking to work with them. But I think it really motivated us to to try to do some so other children are, are saved from the same type of fate. Um, current policies that we have right now, um, uh, are kids being targeted? You're a pediatrician. Do you feel like the industry is targeting children like we know that tobacco did years ago? Well, if you're allowed to sell products that um, call themselves cocoa pebbles, and let me pull out some of my little bag of toys here. So this is, you know, runs candy, and this is uh, cocoa pebbles. Uh, very, both of them, very strong, actually flower. Um, so when we, you know, allow the industry to sell products that, um, and are those legal products that you're holding or or illegal? These are legal products sold in legal dispensaries. I bought these two in the dispensary in Santa Rosa. And, and how could that be legal? Don't we already have legislation as a part of Prop Twenty? Prop 64 that says you should not have marketing that's attractive to, to kids, yet that's very attractive to kids. How, how could that be? Have it. It's, it says you should not have products that are attractive to kids. The application of that standard to packaging and labeling is a little bit less clearly developed in our regulations. And some of it also says that you shouldn't imitate existing foods. Um, such as cocoa pebbles, for example, but then it left it to the regulatory agency to review that on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and essentially, we have a regulatory agency that is doing nothing about its own regulations uh, to protect children, to not have products be attractive to children, or to imitate existing um, products that are commonly marketed to children. So our dispensaries are full of these products. Um, there are also products on the street that are illegal that do the same thing. Um, but we have, even in our legal dispensaries, uh, many products which are, are clearly attractive to children. So we It's need... amazing because we do so much in society to protect the public, right? And, you know, warnings, you know, if you're going to see some flashing lights when you watch this movie and, you know, lay, you know warning stickers on, you know, your mattresses, <laughs> on, on, on food, on, on everything. And yet this is getting a, a free pass and, and preying on our children. I mean, you started with the question from the woman in the emergency room. Yeah. And Gemma. Our cannabis products to be marketed in ways, um, whether it's the product itself or whether it's the box that it's in and the pictures on the box or whether it's the branded merchandise and the other marketing that um, our kids and young people are exposed to. If we allow them to be marketed in ways that make them seem like candy, um, you know, if we allowed them to be marketed as, uh, you know, cola-flavored beverages and strawberry uh, drinks um, or, you know, banana gummies and um, a thousand other presentations or packages that look exactly like um, or very similar to existing candies, um, clearly children are going to mistake them for candies and eat them. Uh, even with childproof packaging, somebody's going to leave it open. They're going to get their hands into it. And that's data that we've seen um, in California with work that was done by UCSF. We've seen it in a recent national paper. We've seen it in another paper that just came out in Canada. Um, the rate of accidental ingestions by children is skyrocketing. Yeah. The number one poisoning for children under the age of five in the United States and growing is marijuana. Now, most of those will resolve. Um, but some kids are ending up in the ICU. Some kids are ending up on ventilators. Uh, in the recent national study, a significant percentage ended up in ICUs and uh, another number on ventilators. Yeah, I think it was 13% ended up in the ICU, 4% on a ventilator. And we've even had a report of a baby who died. That is correct. You know, I, I would go to these um, state advisory meetings and the industry would get up and say, nobody's ever died from cannabis. Um, and while it's true that opiates and fentanyl um, are more lethal, um, when you have a product that is as widely used as cannabis and has some of these serious side effects, those two result in death. They result in death, not so often from overdose, but they result in death because somebody becomes psychotic and does something foolish 
somebody commits suicide, somebody's driving a car and kills somebody or themselves, um, or a baby can um, be exposed to so high a dose that it can be lethal. That's less common, but it has occurred. Um, so the idea that cannabis doesn't kill anybody is simply... no. Nobody died of one puff of tobacco either, right? Yeah, <laughs> they said that. <laughs> it's the same same thing. No one dies of tobacco. It, it was a, a cumulative effect. And, you know, 100 years before we figured out that, oh, I guess tobacco does kill. I actually saw an interesting study right now that they did CAT scans of marijuana smokers versus tobacco smokers. And the lung damage on CAT scan for marijuana smokers was worse than than tobacco. That was interesting. Yeah, that is correct. I mean, it would make sense because you inhale a lot more and deeper when when you smoke pot than when you smoke cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, there are differences. There are real differences between marijuana and cigarettes. For example, there's not evidence of increases in lung cancer, at least not at this time, despite the fact that the smoke does have many carcinogenic components. There's uh, some data on testicular cancer in men. Um, yeah, two and a half fold increase in testicular cancer for um, people who use marijuana on a regular basis. So guys, pay attention. Um, <laughs> the, um, you know, that is concerning. Um, it's a less common cancer, but nevertheless one that's that's um, not one you want to have. Um, at the area I think that we will see more data coming out is in cardiovascular effects. Um, we are seeing increasing numbers of reports of both heart attacks and strokes. Um, particularly in younger adults who are using products. Um, those can be hard to tease out from um, ones that are occurring unrelated to cannabis, um, but those reports are definitely increasing. And that's an area that may be similar to cigarettes, um, which also have a lot of their impact through heart disease. Um, and I think uh, it will take a few more years for us to really see the how the evidence plays out on cardiovascular disease. But my impression is that may be um, an important area. Yeah, the American Heart Association did publish a white paper, really, they're not showing any helpful effects on the heart and definitely um, sounding the alarm on, on the harms for, for cardiac health. Yeah, Professor Springer and others at UCSF have been looking at exposing um, heart tissue cells to the smoke, uh, the secondhand smoke. They've studied it from tobacco and they're studying it from marijuana and they found changes in uh, the activities of these cells were even more dramatic with exposure to marijuana smoke and lasted longer. Interesting. So the, you know, basically the idea that this is a harmless natural substance, which so many people have, like we do focus groups with kids. Um, and when we talk to those kids, so many of them, you know, we, we know there are many mental health problems. Mental health problems were exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, I think all of you have read in the papers about increasing uh, mental health issues of our young people. Suicide rates have increased nationally. Um, so many young people are using marijuana with the perception that it's a safe, natural product um, to treat their stress. And the truth is, it's not a safe and frankly, what's being sold today is not a natural uh, product to treat stress. And it may, uh, in fact, aggravate the mental health risks for many of these students. A safe natural product is joining an outdoor club. It's being in nature. It's going to the movies with your friends. Uh, it's doing um, things that help your development as a young person. Uh, to be active and to build your confidence. It's having mentoring. It, there are many, many things we can do for young people uh, to help with these mental health issues that are very real. But uh, slathering uh, cannabis products, especially these new ones um, across the marketplace is not one of them. Um, I was talking to um, educators from uh, San Mateo County in California just uh, yesterday. Uh, and they were working with students who uh, were on alternatives to suspension. They had been, you know, caught smoking in school or with marijuana products. They're almost all using uh, vapes or other concentrates because they don't smell like pot. So they can get away with using them in school or at home without parents or, or teachers perceiving the smell most of the time. But those are generally very potent products. And so these kids um, are seriously stoned. Um, they're seeing a lot of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, who's 
Uh, I've heard your description of what you're seeing in the ER is uh, with the what did a you daily a daily audible diagnosis. We could hear the agony from the hallway. It's terrible. Yeah. And a friend of mine who's a nurse practitioner who worked in emergency rooms for many years told me even years ago, she had started asking patients about um, whether they were taking too many hot showers. And that was her diagnostic trick to understand if someone was a, a had cannabis use disorder or might have early cannabis yeah. syndrome. So you're, you're, you want to make a difference. You're a physician, a public health expert. And so you put together the Cannabis Right to Know Act legislation um, in California, not against legalization, um, but to put some protection to the public. So tell us about that. So that was one that we did with uh, assistance from a wide range of partners, including yourself, but doctors, the College of Emergency Physicians, the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Pediatricians, the Addiction Medicine Docs, Kaiser. Why did all these people jump on the bandwagon? Because they were all seeing, you know, what we've been talking about. They're seeing these problems in their patients um, in ways that are very worrisome. So nationally, there's just been this dramatic decline in perception of harm from marijuana. So during the you know height of the war on drugs, people were very scared of it, you know, thought it had many negative effects, some many of which are true, some of which were exaggerated. Um, but with legalization and with the increasing um, marketing as a wellness product, uh, public perceptions of harm have declined dramatically. And people are very unaware of some of the more serious effects, and especially the more serious effects of these new products that, that are only recently available. Um, awareness of the fact that it can increase psychosis, uh, that it can some people become suicidal or have paranoid or anxiety reactions is very low, particularly. Even understanding that it can be addictive um, is limited. Um, so what did you want to do in this legislation that the industry found so threatening? We wanted to simply raise awareness, let people know about the uh, two things, actually. One was just how to use marijuana more safely. We were going to require that dispensaries give every customer a little piece of paper with some simple tips about how to use marijuana more safely and be less likely to end up in your emergency room, eating edibles more slowly, starting with the lowest doses, um, avoiding high THC products. That was one part of it. The other part of it was putting on the front of marijuana packages, as is done in Canada, um, a clear visible warning that would tell people um, different statements about these different risks. So really clearly say, don't use this during pregnancy. Say using these products can cause psychosis and schizophrenia, especially if you use high THC products. There's no mental health warnings now. So you wanted warning labels that can be visible with specific criteria that we learned from tobacco on marijuana products, right? And is there science behind that? Is there science that shows that those type of labels, appropriate labels, work in deterring tobacco use? See these mountains behind me? Yeah. There are mountains of science. <laughs> there we go. I love it. That's why you have mountains in the background. So most of it yes. Is but some of it is coming from cannabis. But there has been testing and testing, looking at what makes it possible for someone to see a warning, to focus on it, to remember the information to act upon it or to have it change their motivations to use a product. The bottom line is it has to be big enough that people see it, you know, ideally half of the front of the package. It can't be hidden on the bottom or underneath or sideways. There's there's even science on the color. Like I remember like reading that, that it, the yellow background makes a difference, right? And yeah. Then... So at definitely a high contrast to the package, um, ideally yellow, but it can also be white, um, which is what the FDA is going with for the new tobacco warnings. Um, a graphic element, so a photograph um, that is related to the message makes people uh, have better information recall mm -hmm. um, and perceive the message as more effective. Uh, not putting too much information. So a lot of our cannabis warning labels, what do they look like? They're in six point font, which you need a you know magnifying glass to read, even if you're not my age. Um, 
they're buried underneath the package on the back of the package, sometimes in an insert. Um, I have one can where you had to peel off five layers of labels from the bottom of the can of uh, cannabis mints to get to the, the health warnings. Um, others, you have to buy the product and you'll only see it inside. So um, our California warnings are ridiculous. They're a long run on sentence that is small and invisible. Um, so they're very, they're not likely to be effective. We tested them. We did panels with consumers comparing our California labels to front of pack large labels with contrast um, and rotating statements. We we did all different, you know, permutations of this testing um, with and without pictures. And just as in tobacco, if you've got a picture, it works better. People remember it better. If it's big, if it's got clear contrast, all of those things make them more likely to work. It's, it's funny. We had a whole election that was won based on follow the science. And yet, as you say, we have mountains of science that's just being being ignored. And and you you had a wonderful coalition. I was really honored to be part of that. And, and shout out to um, Heidi Swan, who put together all the parents who gave testimony of, of the harms on their children. It was really heartbreaking. And all the medical community, the pediatricians, the OBGYNs, the emergency physicians, the medical associations, um, real, uh, you know, prevention coalitions, a huge amount of people supporting simple legislation, like have a label, warning label, like we do for tobacco or alcohol. And yet the industry was threatened and successfully killed the bill. I, I was really hopeful that this was simple enough, and yet the the power um, that that they had to kill it, I think, is is shocking and yes, sad. Absolutely right. First, I want to you know, I, we went to testify with Bart and Hazel Bright, whose son Kevin uh, died from psychosis uh, related to cannabis, and they have both worked you know, tirelessly to support parents um, and uh, others who are facing this situation. Um, and they provided very moving testimony uh, in the legislature, which I think is the only reason it got as far as it did. Um, it did make it through the Senate um, almost intact. Uh, we got to the uh, California Assembly where it was terribly weakened through cannabis industry lobbying and the Business and Professions Committee. And then it made it to the floor and but the industry hated this bill so much um, because it would um, tarnish the image of cannabis as a wellness product by making um, more transparent to the public that no, it also has harms and no, you have to be cautious um, and you need to know about, about these issues. Um, so they really hated this bill um, and fought it tooth and nail. Uh, I can't tell you how many lobbyists they had on it. They have made major campaign donations uh, to California policymakers. So and it was only the lobbyists of the cannabis industry who was against it. And yet all these medical organizations, parents and, and prevention coalitions who were in favor. I mean, it was clear who our legislators listened to on this. They listened to the cannabis lobbyists. Um, and, you know, I think it it really harkens back to um, what we used to see with tobacco, with the tobacco industry, the tobacco industry used to circulate very freely in the halls of government um, and still does in many places. Um, I think over a period of 70 years, we've managed to vilify them sufficiently as the product that, you know, is costing a billion lives. Uh, and that is, if used as design, will kill. Um, but that took time to get there. And to have legislators be ashamed of taking a donation from the cannabis industry, most legislators today won't take a donation from Philip Morris or Altrincher. Yeah, I think we can follow the money there, huh? And uh, just, yeah, the degree uh, of, I don't know, I don't know if it's called corruption or um, allegiance or bribery um, to that industry is, is amazing. I mean, I think, I think there's also a lot of misinformation um, with policymakers viewing this as an area of economic development of potential new industry um, in their communities um, and not thinking about the harm and the cost of the harm. I mean, every new case of serious mental illness is tremendously costly for society and for cities and counties, um, but they're not 
putting that in the equation right now. They're looking at the tax revenue from a new business. Yeah. Um, they are not, many of them are not aware or do not, not yet. Not looking at how public health. Yeah. Or they're, they're either not taking it seriously, even though we went and educated every legislator's office with, with uh, partners like you um, and parents. Um, we have to do much more of that, much more effectively. Uh, we need parents and teachers and doctors um, in every city and county across the state and across the nation um, and in other countries where cannabis is being legalized to speak with their policymakers, to educate them um, about the dangers of the cannabis industry as it is currently being reconceived. Um, you know, there are a few places that have done better, like Quebec legalized, um, but they legalized in a much more cautious way. They they had an existing alcohol monopoly and they put the cannabis access through the public monopoly. So you can buy cannabis legally in Quebec, but you can only buy it through a public monopoly store, um, which allows their nice, attractive stores and perfectly good to go into, but they uh, don't allow many of the concentrate products. They don't allow edibles that are attractive to kids or, you know. So that's that's in Quebec? That's in, in Quebec. So they took the profit motive out of it. They're allowing legal access, but nobody's getting rich off of it. Um, and nobody's allowed to market to children or to put ads on TV or on billboards all, all across the state, uh, the province rather. Um, so they created um, a much more reasonable and cautious model for decriminalization, legal access, but not driving up consumption. Uh, you know, our problem is the model we have. Uh, it's commercialization. It's not just lack of regulation. It's a huge commercialization that we're so good at in the United States. Um, yeah, I, I call promoting. it the coca colaization of cannabis, basically. Yeah. Um, it's taking, you know, a traditional botanical product and turning it into a U.S. style, highly marketed, you know, fantastically packaged, really sexy uh, product. And we're really good at that in the U.S. We've, you know, we, that's what we do. We yeah. do this product development, but it has consequences. So Coca-Cola, you know, when it was a little six ounce bottle, you know, that you'd have as an occasional treat at the soda fountain um, didn't cause a lot of problems. But when it became a 64 ounce bottle and, you know, was covering the walls in every 7-Eleven across the country and in our supermarkets and in our uh, corner stores, we have... Uh, not just Coca-Cola, but other sugar-sweetened beverages and, and um, unhealthy junk foods. But um, we have a tripling of diabetes in the United States. We have an obesity epidemic. Um, so it's all about how our products are developed, their size, their marketing, where they're sold, who they're sold to, that makes the difference between a product being, you know, okay um, and being actually causing a lot of harm. So you you mentioned Quebec as an example, a model example of how to regulate um, marijuana that's that's legal. Um, that kind of answers uh, as an example for Gemma's question of what can be done. Is it is that working out for Quebec? Are they seeing less you know um, children addicted and and psychosis and harms on on public health? The data is just starting to merge, but the um, comparisons between Quebec and other provinces and Quebec, uh, other Canadian provinces is looking very positive. There, it looks like they are seeing less increases in use and in frequent use uh, compared to. Well, way to go, Quebec. What are other some best practice or model policies um, that, that you're seeing? You know, I think um, for me, taking the profit drive out of it, decriminalizing, expunging records automatically, uh, criminal records automatically are very important best policies. Mm -hmm. So we don't put people in jail for small scale possession and we and we get rid of old criminal records. Those are very important policies. Um, that's on the criminal justice side of it. But on the health protection side of it, um, some of the most, I, I actually think taking the profit out of the industry and having uh, a nonprofit or public monopoly, highly controlled industry is the single most important thing we could do. But is is that the American way? That's just not our capitalist society, right? Do we do, is there an example of that? Do we do that with any other product? Alcohol monopolies 
post-prohibition were quite widespread in the United States. And we still have 17 states that have some degree of alcohol monopoly. They've come, become less uh, popular, but some of you may remember the states, the state liquor stores, which still exist in, in some states. Um, and Sweden, for example, had that system and other, other places have, and they were very successful at reducing binge drinking and um, heavy uh, unsafe alcohol use. Um, they are effective and safe models, and they have been in use in the United States for alcohol, but the alcohol industry over the decades has pressured uh, to stop that. I mean, I remember being surprised when I moved to California from New York and, and went into a grocery store and saw whiskey for sale, which is something you wouldn't see where I lived before. You couldn't sell uh, you know, high street. I had the opposite effect. When I'm used to being in California where you could you go out to dinner, I went to Maryland and I wanted to buy a bottle of wine for people who were hosting me and like I couldn't buy one. <laughs> it's like, what? So wine and beverages are perfectly available in, in states with alcohol monopolies, but less so. It's a little higher bar to get them. You have to go, there's fewer places selling them, but they're still accessible. And that reduces consumption. Um, and that's kind of the approach that Quebec is using. Uh, governor uh, Gina Raimondi, and uh, when she was governor in Rhode Island, uh, she's in the cabinet now, uh, but she had proposed a similar approach uh, in the state of Rhode Island in her budget a few years ago that for, for their legalization, that did not uh, actually advance. Um, but that was the only state in, in the U.S. that I'm aware of that uh, considered seriously considered uh, that approach. We have uh, suggested it and worked with state governments on it because most of the impetus behind legalization is coming from the for-profit cannabis industry, the ballot initiatives are being financed by you know, people interested in building up that industry or who already have investments. Um, it's hard because um, it, it's hard to overcome uh, their interests in the legislation that's in the ballot initiatives or legislation that's actually uh, going before the voters or the policymakers because it doesn't capture their interests. And um, so one best practice is limiting the the financial profit, which I think would be a hard sell um, in our, our country. Um, another one you we mentioned was um, product labeling. Um, what do you think about we talked about a candy ban? Like, why do we need candy marijuana? Why that only gets children in trouble? What's what's the benefit of having Weedos that look like Cheetos that's sending babies in the emergency department. <laughs> so, you know, when we think about regulating the cannabis industry, I go back to the what we call the P's in marketing. Product, place, um, promotion, uh, people, and price. Um, and the first one is product. And what's what, what does this product actually look like? Um, and that's what you're talking about. So candy. You know, having huge numbers of cannabis products and also hemp products, and I'll talk about hemp in a minute, um, that look like candy, um, Rice Krispie bars, gummies, you know, bears, uh, bright yellow, orange, pink, uh, strawberry soda um, is an invitation to disaster. I mean, clearly, kids yeah. are going to think, uh, young kids are going to confuse it with actual candies. And, you know, middle schoolers and teenagers, um, even if they're not accidentally ingesting it or confusing it, are going to think it's safer than it is because um, there's good research, for example, from um, the FDA on tobacco that when things are flavored, young people think they're safer. You know, so they thought tobacco products were safer because they were labeled as mango or strawberry. Um, right. And, and we just passed legislation about flavored you know, vape products, because that preys on children. And I'm laughing. It's like, okay, but all this marijuana products, that's okay. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. From the day cannabis was legalized in California, um, we, the Public Health Institute, uh, Stan Glantz, Professor Stan Glantz at UCSF and others, sent comments to the state of California when they were writing their first regulations and said, let's learn from tobacco you know, put warning labels on, you know, this way and don't sell products with flavors uh, that we know will attract kids. Um, and then a number of other proposals don't sell products that look like candy. Um, 
you know, don't sell products that have cartoon figures or um, insects or fruits or uh, animals, for example. Um, and yet many, almost all of those warnings uh, that were provided basically every year for the last five years to the state of California were ignored. So as they put together the regulatory framework, um, it focused only about how do I create this legal system? How do I license places, but not how do I protect kids or how do I protect youth? Um, we did see a small chink in the armor this week. So the day that Prop 31 passed uh, statewide on the tobacco flavored ban, uh, the state did uh, issue its new regulations and there is a small, very convoluted, <laughs> hard to understand restriction on flavored products for inhalation that says you're not allowed to put in additives that uh, have flavors other than the flavor of cannabis, like vanilla and chocolate and you know cinnamon uh, into inhaled cannabis products. Um, so, so it only addresses the additives. Um, it does not clearly address the marketing because cannabis is a little different than tobacco. We have a bunch of products that sound like they should have flavors, but don't actually. Um, cherry pie is a strain name and it's on lots of packages of cannabis products. They don't taste like cherry, um, but it's the strain name of the cannabis. Um, and they claim they're not using flavored marketing, but clearly they are. I mean, if the name says cherry in a cookie. I remember seeing, I saw Girl Scout cookies. Girl yeah, Scout cookies right. is a straight name. Um, you know, there's just name after name um, that implies that something, uh, Lemon Kush, uh, I, I get these wrong, but uh, we've analyzed the products for sale in California and a huge percentage of the products. Yeah. Even if they don't have these added flavors, they sound like they do. Peanut butter. What about if marijuana was legalized on a federal level, um, but it included public health protections like um, potency on um, potency caps and candy bans and other regulation? Would that would that have an effect? I you know I was always a believer in regul in legalization. As I've seen the emergence of the cannabis industry and its growing political force, mm -hmm. I am very deeply concerned. Um, it has to be a very highly regulated industry for the benefit of legalization to outweigh uh, the harm. I think there's no question that the benefit of decriminalization and expungement of records is absolutely needed and viable. Right. I, I don't think anybody argues about that. We Most people agree. Yeah. The creation of a for-profit industry has to be done extremely, I would say, don't do it at all. Do a, a public monopoly model, and then you take the energy out from behind the effort to overcome all the regulations and to change the regulatory framework because people aren't making huge amounts of money off of it. Um, but if we're not going that way, and it seems unlikely that we're going that way, if Congress is legalizing, they need to give the FDA full authority to create standards for the content of these products, um, for the limits on potency, for limits on flavor. In fact, they need to require FDA to address those issues specifically. They need to authorize um, limitations on marketing, um, plain packaging, um, warnings, all of those things. Um, so that there is, you know, full power and authority to make sure that this market does not become. Right. The Federal Food and Drug Administration and marijuana is, could be in food and could be in drugs. And, and the FDA um, is really our, our international gold standard for protecting the public. So, I mean, um, putting it under the FDA does not mean they can put it in food. So, um, the FDA has several tracks. Um, they have drug approval. Um, and if someone wants marijuana to be approved as an actual pharmaceutical product, it should have to go through the entire process that any other medicine has to go through. Clinical trials, prove that it works, find out what the adverse effects are compared to other products or placebo. Um, so for, some, for a marijuana derivative to be sold as a pharmaceutical, it should be no different than any other, and, and several marijuana products have already made it through that process. For example, a Pedialex, which is used for some forms of unusual ep epilepsy. Um, marijuana should not be added to food. 
um, whether it comes from a hemp plant, which is no other than the same cannabis sativa plant as uh, regular marijuana, just with lower THC content. But our, there's no place in our food for psychoactive uh, cannabinoid derivatives or even CBD. We shouldn't, you know, we don't put Valium, we don't sell, you know, we don't, you don't go to Jamba Juice and get your shake, you know, sprinkled with Valium. <laughs> right, a shot of Valium. <laughs> you know, with CBD or, or THC, right. those are active pharmaceutical substances or active uh, cannabinoids with, you know, many effects on your neurological system and some we don't understand yet. They have uh, medication interactions, as, as you've noted, um, you know, so we shouldn't be sprinkling any of that stuff into the food supply. Um, if it's sold, um, I would suggest that, you know, we create something similar to the tobacco bureau at, um, the tobacco agency at FDA, which recognizes that cannabis is a special case. It's a product, um, separately from the pharmaceutical licensing tract, which may still, which would still exist, um, but that it's a harmful, but legal product. If it is legalized, that requires very rigorous um, and strict special uh, enforcement regimens uh, so that the legalization. Uh, and, the, and the industry would have to fund the FDA because otherwise they would just cannot keep up with. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of products. For example, we should have pre-market approval of products so that they don't look like cocoa pebbles. Um, because as we see in California, even if you have it in the law, if there's not a requirement that somebody's looking at that product and approving it, um, these cases of products that are fulminantly attractive to kids are obviously imitating existing food products are not detected. And I, I like your idea of pre-market approval. Although if we couldn't get simple labels <laughs> passed through California, I don't know if we could get pre-market approval of those uh, of those labels. Several states do have it. So Maryland's medical system, for example, did pre-market approval of uh, medical products. And Does that mean that Maryland doesn't have any of these Cocoa Pebble pot products um, legally? I know a guy who works for me now used to work there doing that job and he would yeah. take them off and he would not allow them. The current situation in Maryland, I can't speak to because I haven't looked at their mm -hmm. cannabis supply. I would guess that it's probably a lot better than California's in terms yeah. of products attractive to children, but I, I I haven't looked at it myself. So I I wouldn't consider myself a reliable spokesperson on that issue. Yeah. <laughs> but you are much more likely to um to be able to constrain those trends with pre-market approval, but it's a lot of work because there are a lot of cannabis products and it means a human being uh sitting there and looking at them. People have even developed some screening software, um, but I haven't really seen good validation of how well it works. Um, oh, interesting. Dr. Lynn Silver, you are such a wealth of knowledge on on uh, the fine points of policy and, and policy that protects the public. Doesn't you know? Uh, uh, again, not about legalization, but about regulation and public health protections. Um, tell us about getting it right from the start. I love that name, getting it right from the start and the start of your brain, right, for the, the growing brain of youth. Tell us about your, the organization you lead and uh, what your future goals are. Well, our future goal is encapsulated in the name, but we kind of have already seen that that it's overly ambitious. Um, you know, when we were created right at the start of uh, passage of Prop 64 in 20, then uh, that transition from the elections in 2016 to early 2017, uh, the idea was there was a year uh, before local government had to decide whether to allow the sale of cannabis or not and issue its legal framework. So we worked really quickly to get, do research and gather information and try to put together um, model laws and key principles that could help guide legalization if a local government was moving forward. So things like limiting potency, not allowing flavors. Uh, if you created retail outlets using a limited number and not an endless number of retail outlets um, and other policies that we knew from tobacco control or alcohol control could uh, reduce uh, harmful use of these products. Um, there's a whole lot of them. Um, but our project tried to put together that expertise and legal framework to be available to provide technical assistance to local governments, to community partners, community advocates, um, so to help move forward um, these issues, uh, primarily at the local level. And then we also tried to keep the pressure on at the state, but the state was 
very, very difficult uh, and continues to be so. Um, we created cannabis policy scorecards for every city and county in California and, and just sent those out. Our fourth uh, set of annual scorecards just went out. Uh, so those were inspired by the American Lung Association, which has for many years has put out local tobacco policy scorecards and mayors hate it when they get an F, so they pass smoke free air laws. Um, and we want to try and create the same kind of pressure in cannabis that um, no, um, you know, opening on-site consumption lounges and restaurants is going to get you an F on our scorecards and it'll show up in the local paper and, and you don't want that. Um, or not acting to protect your kids um, is going to get you in trouble. So our project uh, works actually all across the country um, to support uh, governments who are interested or community partners who are active on these issues to review laws that are being proposed, look at regulations, provide comments, organize uh, activism and coalitions. For example, in Illinois, we worked with the Illinois Public Health Institute to pull together a coalition prior to legalization that did a white paper and presented key recommendations to the legislature, uh, some of which were incorporated into Illinois' laws. Um, so we, we've had some successes, um, not anywhere that has really adopted a full regulatory framework that we'd like to see, but we have helped to get the first potency-based taxes into effect in different places. Uh, we worked with Contra Costa County, which did the first ban on flavored inhaled cannabis products uh, in the nation that I'm aware of, um, and which is now starting to move forward at the state level and hopefully nationally, um, and other uh, similar examples. We've worked with some places that put up those warning signs and give information to consumers about health effects. Uh, San Francisco does that, for example. Um, so there's, you know, tobacco, if, it, if any of you worked in tobacco control, you'll know that a lot of uh, good tobacco policies started local. Um, and then they spread. Um, I worked on food policies like banning trans fat. And when we did it in New York City, we were the first city to uh, implement this policy that people thought was very strange at first. Uh, and then it spread rapidly to many cities and states. And by 2015, nationally, trans fat came out of the food supply. Um, right. and, and that's such important public health policy that helps, um, you know, decrease issue of, you know, heart disease and, and high cholesterol and stuff just by a, a simple uh, measure that people don't even notice or even realize. Yeah, nobody knew what trans fat was for the most part. <laughs> um, and that's okay. Good public health policy often acts invisibly um, and quietly. Um, and better regulation of the cannabis market may be like that if we can, by design, make the products that are sold less harmful um, and help have better adoption of better policies um, that can make a real difference in the level of harm. It won't eliminate it entirely, but it can make a difference. Um, one research project we've been doing with Kaiser Permanente, um, Kaiser's been following all of its pregnant women and they have a lot of pregnant women. <laughs> so, you know, tens of thousands of pregnant women each year. Um, and they check, um, and do counseling and screen people for substance abuse and so forth. Uh, they've seen almost a doubling of cannabis use in pregnancy over the last decade. And we looked at the relationship between the number of storefront dispensaries um, within a 15-minute drive from a woman's house um, and the likelihood that she'd use cannabis during pregnancy. And we saw just a dose-response relationship. The more, wow. you know, the more dispensaries within 15-minute drive, uh, use went up by about 30%. Yeah, we know that for all drugs, right? Supply matters and the number of dispensaries is supply. Yeah. So, you know, rather than having cannabis in every corner store, having legal access, but reasonable, not too much. You have to decide very consciously that you're going to go drive over to the store and get some, you know, in hours when it's open um, can help reduce um, impulse buying and, and um, increasing rates of use. Um, if you're in a situation where it's being legalized. So, you know, there's just many of these policy levers that can be used to reduce harm um, if you're in some place that has decided to legalize, which is a growing part of, uh, of the country. 
I want to say thank you to Gemma. Gemma is my colleague in the emergency department. Gemma, thank you for your question. And I bless you with a lot of energy and health so you can continue um, the work and thriving in your service in the emergency department. And Dr. Lynn Silver, thank you so much. I so appreciate your insights, your expertise, wishing you and your team with getting it right from the start and passing smart public health policy and promoting an informed public. Thank you, Renee. Thank you for your leadership on this issue as well. And um, look forward to continuing to work with you to uh, keep uh, our cannabis market safer for people. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.